If you have your copy of Scripture, find Joshua, please. Joshua 4. And um, if you didn't bring your Bibles, there should be a copy in the back of the pew in front of you. It's Joshua 4 from where we're going to read. Joshua 4, and we're going to read beginning at verse uh, 1. I don't remember how I know this, but um, there's an alternative rock band. They've disbanded now, but they, uh, they were called Abandoned Kansas. And they, they sang uh, this song. It says, uh, don't forget where you came from when you're looking ahead. Tell me the story. I need to hear it again. Once more, those words. Don't forget where you came from when you're looking ahead. Tell me the story. I need to hear it again. We are about to look ahead in, in just a few minutes. We're going to take a turn and we're going to look to the future. But before we do that, we're going to take a look in the rearview mirror. That's, uh, that's what God in, inspired his people to do when they were leaving Egypt and headed into the promised land. Before they took that on-ramp uh, to the future, that they, that they look back and see where they come from. And that's what Joshua 4 is about. Let's begin at verse 1. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan River, the Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing, and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and he said to them, go over before the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you in the future when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. Now, if you look down to verse 19. On the tenth day of the first month, the people went up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the twelve stones they had taken out of the Jordan River. He said to the Israelites, in the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. If you've been in Sunday school over the years, you know that for 400 years or so, the people of Israel had been enslaved in Egypt. And then God miraculously delivered them, a la parting of the Red Sea, and so on. But they wandered for four decades or so south and east of the Jordan River, and it had come now time to cross westward over the Jordan River into the promised land, the land promised to Abraham, their ancestor, the land that essentially makes up now uh, the nation of Israel. But he said, uh, I want you to establish a memorial because the children, I want the children, I want the children to have an excuse to ask you 
about your story, about their story, about their history. So these stones, he said, will be uh, an opportunity, a reminder about the power of God, about what he's done for us, and that will be an encouragement for the future. Today, before we look forward, we're going to take a few minutes to look back. John Hunt settled over at what we now call the Big Spring about 1805, and there were, of course, a lot of uh, Native Americans already here, but it wasn't long until other outsiders began to join John Hunt, and they started settling around here. Several uh, began to settle up north, 10 miles north of here, at, at where, where we now, what we now call Meridianville. At 1805 was John Hunt. 1809, there were 19 Christians, who, one of them being a slave, who established the West Flint River Baptist Church. Within a month, they renamed it the Enon Baptist Church. Enon is a name from the Bible which uh, describes the area along the Jordan River where Jesus uh, was baptized. That was 1809. They met in homes for the first five years, and then they built uh, the first building. Uh, Enon Baptist Church, by the way, would take the name First Baptist Church of Huntsville in 1893. So the Enon Baptist Church, which would become the First Baptist Church, they built their first building, our first building, in 1814. In those days, the men sat on one side and the ladies sat on the other. In the early days of our church's history, they were serious about church discipline. Now, lots of churches, in every church I know of, every church's history I've read in the 18, early 1800s were very serious about church discipline. Bruce Gorley wrote a book, A History of Our Church, that was published in uh, 2009 for our 200th anniversary. And he tells uh, some of the things that people were disciplined for. For example, if you went two months, and they only met once a month, if you went two months without going to church, they would, uh, the disciplinary committee would uh, come check up on you. And there's a clause in there that says, especially the males, which says they thought the men needed it worse than the women did. And I would, I'd suggest that I got a few amens for on that one. And I'd suggest things haven't, Pam, haven't changed a whole lot uh, since then. Other interesting reasons for which they were disciplined, uh, Bruce Gorley took from our minutes that people, were, and I'm quoting him now, were disciplined for adultery and attending the Methodist church. <laughs> so in those days, you know, can't you imagine two guys sitting around, uh, I got kicked out, did you? Did you attend the Methodist church? No, I committed adultery. I didn't attend the Methodist church. Fortunately, we think that's not as bad as it used to be. Of course, I'm talking about attending the Methodist church now. And they would discipline you if you got caught going to worship with the Methodists. In 1855, the disciplinary committee went to visit a widow. I'm not going to mention her name, lest some of her descendants still be in the church. But they went to see a widow. She had had six husbands. All six of them had died, and there was strong suspicion they did not die by natural causes. <laughs> and so they went to see this widow, and uh, the minutes read that for the cause of Christ, she withdrew her, her membership. Then um, 
People began to, Huntsville began to boom in the 1850s. This was a boom town and members of E9 Baptist Church were moving to, into Huntsville anyway out of the country up north and so they decided to relocate. So they moved here and in 1861, the year the Civil War began, our church then still called the E9 Baptist Church built its first building. 100 years later, Huntsville was again a boom town, 1960s. And this church, and many of you were there, took advantage of, strategically took advantage of the growth of Huntsville and moved to the edge of town out to what we affectionately now call the turnip patch because when they were digging the, they were breaking ground, somebody struck a turnip. So it makes for a great story that they were in the turnip patch and built, uh, built this building relocated out here. Uh, I want to take th three stories in particular from the life of our church. Uh, some of you will have heard uh, two of them at least, but I, I think they're defining stories and, and it's important to hear them again, like that song from Abandoned Kansas. Tell me the story. I need to hear it again. The first story uh, is about us getting in trouble over the cause of missions. In the 1820s, there was a movement that swept through the Tennessee Valley, an anti-missionary movement. The movement said that, um, that God had assigned some people to heaven and other people to hell, and there's not anything you can do about it. And so to send missionaries, to be missionary, was not only a waste of time, but it was an insult to God and to his church. So this movement swept through and said we shouldn't do missions, but the Enon, by the way, they had formed, by the way, now we were part of a larger association. There were several Baptist churches had formed in the 1820s and 1830s, and we were part of the Flint River Baptist Association. And the majority of churches in the Flint River Baptist Association embraced that anti-missionary mindset that said we shouldn't do missions, we shouldn't send missionaries. But the Enon Baptist Church, our forefathers and foremothers, said no, the Great Commission has not been revoked. We are a missions people. And so they and a handful of others got shown the door, given the boot, kicked out, ousted, thrown out. We got thrown out of the Flint River Baptist Association. And I couldn't be prouder of having gotten kicked out of a group that thought we're not supposed to be missionary minded. That is, a, I think, a defining story in the life of our church. The second has to do with an organ. 1871, First Baptist Church, of course, still then it was still called the Enon Baptist Church, bought and installed an organ. And you're thinking, Travis, why is that uh, such a big deal? It was a big deal in 1871 to have an organ. Baptists in the 1800s, many of them were not even sure about having music in the church at all. And the organ was especially controversial. It was believed, Esther, to be an instrument of worldly music. And so Bruce Gorley wrote that, um, by the way, uh, Leonard Sweet tells the story of a church in Houston that installed an organ. It was so controversial. They, this is the 1800s. They installed it in the middle of the night so that people wouldn't sabotage the installation of the organ. When we bought an organ in 1871, Bruce Gorley, who wrote our history on our 200th anniversary, wrote, in the late 19th century, organs represented 
the cutting edge of Baptist worship in the South. So we were cutting edge in 1871, bought an organ. In a minute, I'll tell you why I think that's a defining story in the life of our church. The third story is about the Southern Baptist Convention. Ralph Langley became our pastor in 1979. Right about that time, Southern Baptists had begun to fight over uh, such things as uh, women in ministry, what role they should have, and so on. And a lot of folks thought that the six Southern Baptist seminaries were, were drifting radically uh, to the left, and so there was this conservative uh, resurgence. Nobody could ever call Ralph Langley a liberal. If you know Ralph, you would agree with me. He believed the Bible. It was the authority for what he believed in practice. He preached the salvation of people who were lost. He was not a liberal, but he did believe that the Southern Baptist Convention was about to take a radical turn to the right toward uh, independent uh, Baptists and Jerry Falwell being one. And so he, he thought that wasn't right. So in the 1981 gathering of Southern Baptists, Ralph Langley stood at that big gathering and he nominated Abner McCall. Abner McCall had just retired as the president of Baylor University. Ralph Langley nominated Abner McCall because Abner McCall was considered to be a moderating voice in the convention. He would be a moderate candidate. The other candidate was a, a, a real con a strong conservative named uh, Bailey Smith. So Ralph Langley stood and nominated Abner McCall, but Abner McCall, his candidate, lost. Bailey Smith won. Ralph Langley, and I understand this happened on the platform. I'm not sure, completely sure of that. But Ralph Langley turned to Bailey Smith, who had just beaten the candidate that Ralph Langley had nominated, extended his hand and said, would you come to First Baptist Church of Huntsville and preach a revival? Some of you all remember that revival. That was a defining moment because um, we would not take a, a, a radical turn to the right, but neither that some of our brothers and sisters did, but neither would we take uh, a, at least a slow drift to the left as some of our other uh, brothers and Baptist brothers and sisters did. When Ralph Langley did what Ralph Langley did, it, 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 it set us up to be uh, a centrist uh, church that would stand humbly but firmly on, at our place on the Baptist spectrum. We wouldn't be mad about it, and we would be a big tent. We would say that there are various positions and opinions welcomed here. Those three stories said we will be a church that thinks missionally, we will be a church that thinks creatively, and we will be a church that thinks for ourselves. The first story about the missions, even though we were getting kicked out, we wouldn't budge and we wouldn't violate our convictions, we said the, we, are, we are great commissioned people and we still are. So the first story says we will think missionally. The second story about the organ, as silly as it sounds now, was a big deal then and, and Gorley said we were on the cutting edge of Baptist worship in 1871. That says we will be a church that will think creatively. When Ralph Langley did what Ralph Langley did and he was such a unique and wonderful leader, he, I think, and you who were here then, set us up to be a church that would be centrist, but that would be a big tent, and we wouldn't take the hard direction, this direction, or, or, 
a hard turn one direction or the other. We will think missionally, and we will think creatively, and we will think uh, for ourselves. Those, I think, are defining moments. And just like God said to the people of Israel, I want you to look back. Build these, this memorial with 12 stones and look back. It is important that we remember where we came from. It was important for the people of Israel. But please hear me. They did not conquer Canaan land. They did not possess the promised land. They did not hang their hats in the holy land by marveling at the memorial. Their success lay not in looking backwards, but in crossing the Jordan River and taking the new land. Their success lay in remembering where we've come from, but not forgetting uh, where they were going. The most important word I would argue in this story is actually not in chapter 14 from which we read, but the first word of the next chapter Chapter 15, and the, second, the first word of the next chapter is the word now. Now. Now that we have marveled at the memorial, now that we've told our children what, they, what this means, now. And we have some wonderful thens in our history, but the most important word for us is now. We are a 210 years old plus which means that um, 49, actually 39 and a half years from now, there's going to be a big wing ding here, and they will celebrate the 250th anniversary of First Baptist Church of Huntsville. I already have it on my calendar. Looking, I'm looking forward to it. I will have turned 100 about two weeks before that, and planning if I'm not playing golf, I plan on, plan on being here. We are deciding now what the 250th anniversary of this church will look like. It will either be a nostalgic but sad look back down memory lane, or it will be a celebration of the, the best days in the 250 years of this congregation. It's not all on our shoulders, but we are helping to determine now what the 250th anniversary of this church will look like. We are helping to determine now whether there will be a 300th anniversary at all. Depending on how people count, if you count new startups that don't make it, every year in the United States, 3,500 to 7,000 churches close. Churches are struggling across the landscape. Young adults are either abandoning or ignoring the church, and we're losing them from the Christian faith. Pew Research Center began several years tracking how many people click or click or check Christian on Gallup polls. Every year, there's 1% less than the previous year. They began several years ago. That doesn't sound like a precipitous decline, but let's put it this way. Last week, we stood down here and dedicated uh, John Silas Kirk. When, if the trend continues, when John Silas graduates from high school, he will graduate into a country that is minority Christian. 
And that's a big deal. We can't, you know, we can't do everything, but we can do something. And we can do our part in God's mission to the world. This, don't let it be lost on us. This is a pivotal moment in the life of our congregation. Which brings us to the Generations Campaign. We have a consultant who's helping us think through how do we raise $7 million in a way that, that makes us better disciples. And he said that I'm supposed to tell you what Carrie and I are going to give to the campaign. So I'm going to do that, but first one more story from our history. In 1929, the Great Depression hit the worst economic era in our country's history. First Baptist Church was on Clinton Avenue, was struggling. It was the, it was the Great Depression. Their uh, pastor, Pastor John Milford, who was a graduate of Samford, then was called Howard. John Milford decided that because things were tight, uh, he would give part of his salary back. He made $4,000 a year. And he said, uh, I'm going to give back, because of the Great Depression, I'm going to give back a tenth of our salary, uh, $400 uh, to the church. I heard uh, Mike Kirk tell that story in a deacon's meeting uh, a few months ago. And I went home and I told Carrie that and I said, I think that's what we should do. And she agreed. So for over the next three years, Carrie and I are going to give $400 to the uh, Capital <laughs> Stewardship Campaign. <laughs> no, we're not going to do that. For three years, we're, we're going to double our tithe. So we've always, as long as we've been married, we've given a tenth of our income before taxes, if that matters to you, to the churches we have been members, been members of or served as, as pastor. And we've done that gladly. But beginning, uh, beginning the 1st of March, and for three years, uh, we will double the tithe that you, of, of the salary that you generously provide uh, for us. The care doesn't work outside the home now. And um, we're going we're gonna to double our tithe. So a tenth of our income will go to the ministries and operation of this church that we love so deeply. And then 10% will go to the Generations Campaign. Now, if I ever for a moment thought that was a, an admirable gift, two or three weeks ago, I, uh, I sat with a couple who told me that for three years, they're going to triple uh, their tithe. So I, knowing them, and I don't know what anybody makes or what anybody will give, but knowing them, I'm certain that they give a tenth of their income already to the missions and operation of this church. And so for two years, uh, they will give 20% of their income above their tithe to uh, the Generations Campaign. Now, I know that everybody will not be able to triple your tithe or double your tithe. But this is a pivotal moment, and it's a big goal, and we, we do need everybody to participate, and we need you to do the best you can. So when you come up with a figure, don't come up with that figure quickly or easily, but wrestle with it. Make it a prayerful decision. Make it a decision that requires courage and Trust, because if it doesn't require courage and trust and sacrifice, then it is not a gift worthy of the Lord of our and every church. This week I was in uh, Phoenix. Uh, Carrie and I were there for a, um, 
a pastor's conference. It's, it's, a, it's actually a meeting of a peer uh, learning group. We, um, it's, it's, there were 25 of us there, 22 pastors, three, um, three, two church consultants, one, the president of a seminary. And it, we, we get together every year and we learn from each other. This year we talked about everything from church security to uh, fees of, for online giving. We learn from each other. But we also share our hearts with each other. It's a trusting group and the, the trust level is so high. We, we share our hearts and, and don't tell anybody. And so there've been, every year there are tears shed. When it came my uh, turn this year to uh, share where, you know, we always share, how are you doing, where, how are things going, and where are you in life? I said, uh, four years ago, I sat around this table and said to you, 10 days from now, I will preach my trial sermon at the First Baptist Church of Huntsville, Alabama. And I continued. Thus began the four happiest years of my pastoral ministry. And I tell you that because that's a big deal for God has blessed us with some wonderful happy years as a pastor. But we believe there's something special, Carrie and I do, about this place. We believe there's something mystically, wonderfully, supernaturally special about this place. And I want you to know that we are all, that Carrie and I are all in. And that means the campaign and beyond. Heart and soul, feet first, no holding back. Uh, we are all in because I believe in this place and I believe in you and I am more grateful than you know to be the pastor of this church. I also believe we must be a, a church of multiple generations. When I say that, please don't hear me saying that children are, are more important than people my age and older. But what I am saying is it's time we, it's time our building reflected our priorities, that this place matters to children. If you go to Chuck E. Cheese or Chick-fil-A, their children, they have invested in children, and you go there, and people know they care about children. If people come here, we greet them, we love them, but if they go to the rooms, they say, this church, uh, children don't matter so much, and, and we've got to fix that. Fifteen years ago, our son Landon was a student minister in Waco, Texas at the Harris Creek Baptist Church. And I walked in with Carrie to the lobby and um, we, we saw a verse on the, side, on the wall the, the, to the right of where you go in. This is the children's area where you checked in children and emblazoned on the wall in big letters were the words of Psalm 71:18 that say, even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, O Lord, until I declare your power to the next generation, your mighty acts to all who are to come. And I was arrested by that. I had never paid attention to that verse. But when I saw that, I was arrested by that, and that has become one of the two passages of Scripture that define my sense of mission. 
One is the Great Commission when Jesus said, go to all the world and make disciples and baptize them. The second one is Psalm 71, 18. Even when I'm old and gray, do not forsake me, O Lord, until I declare your power to the next generation, your might to all who are to come. That is so important to me that last year when we were in Israel, I bought a ring and I had Psalm 71, 18 inscribed in Hebrew on that, on that ring. Now, I know that you're, you do not exist to fund my vision. I also believe that it is not by coincidence that you and I came together at this point in the history of this church that all of us so deeply love. There are, we have resources and opportunities and we are who we are because people have made courageous decisions, people whose names we don't even know. When in 1838 they said, you can kick us out if you want to, but we're going to be a missions people. In 1963, when, the, when this church could not get a loan, some of you co-signed personally and risked some risk to your own houses so that we could be sitting here today. We are at just such a place, and, th and I think we're together for such a time as this. Carrie and I are all in, and I really, I really pray that all of you are too. We're going to sing a hymn, hymn number 490, and we give you an opportunity to be a part of our church. We'd be thrilled. If you're already a follower of Jesus and you're looking for a church home and you think this is where the Spirit of God is leading you, we'd be thrilled to welcome you. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we exist for the purpose of helping you know him and we would be thrilled to talk with you. Some other ministers are going to be here with me. You come to where we are, and we'll take it from there. Let's stand, please, and let's sing.